We doing this? You set up? Be careful, that thing's gonna fall. You good? Yes. <clears throat> you sure? Yes. And what up, wolves? It's Don Chen's new conversation. I'm here with my bestest buddy. He, we were trying to figure out how I'm going to define him. So we're defining him as an endurance athlete and an adventurer. Full of adventure. Tyler Carnavale. Thanks for having me. I think that does a pretty good job at explaining Are you excited? What I'm about. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Thanks you don't for sound excited. Me. No, I'm excited. You're all excited before this. I'm super excited. Come Are on. Are you? Yeah. Okay. I have Tyler on because he is an adventurer who rode the Arctic Ocean and he has several Guinness World Records for it. I'm going to read them off just to start, just so we're all on the same page about how cool Tyler is. He has eight records. Youngest person to row the Arctic Ocean open waters north to south. First row across the Greenland Sea. First team of six to row the Arctic Ocean open waters. First row across the Arctic Ocean open waters north to south. Most people in a team to row the Arctic Ocean open waters. Northernmost latitude from which a rowing vessel started a north to south row on the Arctic. Oh my God, Arctic Ocean open waters. <laughs> Northernmost latitude on land from which a rowing vessel has departed on the Arctic Ocean open waters. Ooh, last one, I think. Northernmost latitude reached by a rowing vessel on the Arctic open wa- ocean open waters at the edge of the Arctic peak. Ice peak. Ice pack. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also subsequently ran the Marathon de Sable. Is that considered the hardest race in the world or one of? What it would is. You, what would you yeah, consider it? They, they, uh, it's been called the toughest foot race on earth. Okay, so he did both of those things. First, do any of those records count if they're so specific? Like, does that even count as anything? Like, can you just make up records? <laughs> no. Uh, I think those make it sound a little too bit or technical. Um, basically, if you wanted to simplify them, we were the first people to ever cross the Arctic Ocean in a man-powered vessel, uh, whether it was rowing or another form of manpower. But um, first people to cross the Arctic Ocean, first people to cross the Greenland Sea. And, of course, I was the youngest person to... Ever cross an empowered vessel, so I think those sound a little bit too technical, but those are the main takeaways. All right, that clears it up because I could barely even read those. <laughs> All right, so now reversing before we get started, this was a big debate. Him getting these ready, two truths and a lie. He he is my best friend, and he doesn't think he's going to be able to stump me. So let's see if he does it. Ooh, let's see. Okay, two truths and a lie. Um, let's see here. So. I've never been to Los Angeles. I despise mint ice cream, like chocolate chip mint ice cream. And let's see here. He has them written down. I worked for a summer on a fishing boat off the coast of Maine. This is actually this is actually good. See, I thought you'd do this is better than I thought you'd do. <laughs> Well, you hate mint chocolate chip ice cream, you said? Despise. Despise the flavor of mint chocolate chip ice and cream. And then the first one was... Because I feel like I'm eating gum. It's kind of true. <laughs> and what was the first one? First one was I've never been to Los Angeles. Ever. Pretty tricky, huh? Didn't think I'd be able to stump you, but looks like I did. Ice cream. Ice cream is what? The lie? The lie. 
Uh, no, the lie is I worked on a fishing boat off the coast of Maine for a summer. Oh, really? Yeah. Damn. I would I would have loved to. It was always a dream of mine, but I was too busy. Damn it. With other things, I guess. See, you got me. I got you. I got him. Just for the record, I got him. <laughs> for all listening, he got me. I got him. All right. So you were a part. So this was a part of a team, right? That you rode the Arctic Ocean. We'll start there since that was first. What You did that 2017, right? Yep. August 2017. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you did that on a team. How much rowing experience did you have going into that? Going into the application process, zero, but going into the actual row, about two months worth. Okay. So first question, how did you get on a team with zero rowing experience? (laughs) This is a great question. This is what everybody always asks. And, And actually the people who were doing it had a lot of rowing experience, right? Tons. Like Alex Gregory, for example, two-time Olympic gold medalist. It makes no sense that a guy of my uh, experience level made it onto that boat. But I did, and now I'm much more experienced than many rowers, I guess. In a All way. right. So, ex- well, first explain how you, like, what inspired you to do it? Did you, like, stumble upon it just by chance? Or were you looking for something? Were you looking for something like that specifically? Like, how did you even come to that conclusion that you are going to do it? So, like, I'm really spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> You never know what I'm going to do. That's true. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) But I feel like that's, yeah. Um, No, I was sitting in a a Starbucks, still hadn't gotten a job out of college and was thinking about something I could do to kill the time, maybe just walk aimlessly across a continent. Who knows? I'm crazy. And um, I saw on this website called explorersconnect.com, there was like a classified type ad section and um, there was this kind of this advertisement looking for a sixth and final member of a rowing team to cross the Arctic Ocean. Uh, I don't think it specifically said the Arctic Ocean because I wanted to keep it on the DL, but um, I, for the hell of it, just signed up because it was framed more of like a, an endurance event. And of course, I love running long distances and said no rowing experience required. So I did it for the hell of it and heard back from the captain and the organizer, Fion, uh, a couple days later, and it's pretty much what, what kicked it off. There was no rhyme or reason, just bored, did it for the hell of it, looked cool, and yeah. So then you apply for it, and then how do they determine whether you were qualified or not? Did you see them in person or not? No. So Fion was based out of Iceland. Um, we connected on WhatsApp, and had two video interviews, um, had to pass some physical requirement tests, I guess, on the ERG machine um, and just show proof that I was capable of doing what he asked, um, which was pretty intense. It involved a lot of sweating and a lot of uh, vigorous movement. And after that, I guess, yeah, the rest was history. I, I took two months of private rowing lessons in North Jersey. I forget what the... The schools now, it's like a, a rowing house for a couple of the universities up there. But yeah, no, yeah, just uh, had to pass some physical tests, had to, you know, go through those video interviews and that was pretty much it. So how do they even, so just cause you went on a rowing machine and said, Hey, I could do it for X amount of time. They're like, okay, you're good. So yep. like, could I have done it? Yeah. 
No. Um, no, I mean, you could have, yeah, if you wanted it bad enough. It was like, basically, you had to have a month of your life free, which I did. I feel like not many people could have swung that at the time. It was a pretty hefty investment, especially with the, the wrong lessons and a lot of preparation and a lot of the equipment and the physical aspects of like the requirements were pretty demanding. But if you could pass all of those, you could have done it too. Okay. So you pretty much get it with no rowing experience. Um, so then when you had to train, what was, did they give you something? Did they just say, Oh, just get in shape. Like what was the strategy going into training for it? And how much time did you actually have? I think like you said it, but I forget. Yeah. So I can't remember. I think that was early, like maybe April or May 2017. So I had, uh, quite a few months at my disposal, Carlo Facino, one of the guys he was actually a rowing coach, a crew crew coach at uh, UC Davis, I want to say. There's a million of them. So I know, knows? so <laughs> one, one of them. Um, he like helped me with a lot of the, the training and the, the physical side of things. Over the course of those months, it was a lot of uh, running. It was a lot of endurance training and a lot of time on the erg machine. Also, ocean rowing is super different from rowing on a flat river or typical crew. So a lot of it also had to do with bulking up, putting a lot of weight on, especially in like the final weeks, um, which is funny because I just got to eat Chipotle every day. <laughs> and yeah, that's pretty much it. Were you able to simulate being on the ocean in any way or not? Nah? Like when you were training? Um, yeah, I would throw salt into my eyes and <laughs> put, put ice cubes down the back of my shirt. And uh, that was pretty close. I'd shut the lights off in my room, sit in my closet and start crying. And I feel like they brought me pretty close to what I'd experience. But no, definitely not. <laughs> Wait, so how many times did you actually go on the water, like on any body of water rowing before doing it? Uh, maybe, maybe like eight to 10 times. I can't really remember. But I spoke to a few of the guys who were part of the team like especially carlo he had rode across the pacific at this point fion had rode across the pacific in the indian ocean and they pretty much just said there's no way to prepare for it like at least the the mental aspect um and also during the summer above the arctic circle it's going to be light out 24 7 and that's also something that was going to screw with your circadian rhythm and something you couldn't prepare for either so then did they have any advice for you on how to do it like what was there any type of strategy that you could possibly uh implement that could help where they just like you just have to tough it out pretty much it's just a mental thing yeah they pretty much told me uh <laughs> they they said th there were some aspects you just couldn't prepare for and um you could cry all you want but there wasn't going to be no land we could stop at if it got too hard so how did they know they could trust you though if most of it's the mental aspects you have no rowing experience but then they also say oh but it's mostly mental so how do they know that a guy that they that applied online that they didn't know prior we would be able to do the entire row. Oh, Vincenzo, if only you would listen to me. <laughs> so I did say we had two face-to-face -face interviews over Skype video call. Yeah, but that doesn't like, I could have oh, two face-to-face -face interviews with finished. someone and I'd be like, oh, this guy could row the Arctic Ocean. I, I didn't he finish explaining. Cool. So I, <laughs> I stared Fion in the eyes for about 20 minutes. No words were spoken. And he nodded his head and said, he's ready. <laughs> <laughs> it was intense. I didn't blink once. Blood kind of started coming out of the, the tear ducts. It was pretty crazy. No, I think I think um, he interviewed me and he asked me questions about, I mean, I feel like 
it's, it's just hard to gauge someone's mental toughness, you know, like that's oh, kind of absolutely. what I'm getting at. But I, I, I can't remember the questions he asked me now, but he asked me some pretty good questions. And I feel like also someone who is willing to put themselves in the situation wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I guess you have to be like, you, I, I was, I was pretty confident. Yeah. There's not much that could crack me. All right. So then you go to do it, right? You get on the water. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. did you first, <laughs> when did you first realize how much it was going to suck? Like as soon as you got there, was it like a day or two? Like when were you like, oh shit, this is going to be a problem? Well, when the rest of the super experienced guys on the team started to give me swirlies in the days leading up to it. (laughs) (laughs) They actually actually bullying you? No, not at all. (laughs) Um, No, I think. So we we had some time in Svalbard and Longyearbyen to get things ready to vacuum pack the food and to get everything situated. And um, I think once I was up there, it started to hit me how crazy it was going to be to to be in the open waters for potentially a month with no chance to even see land um, and probably be in one of the most remote areas um, on the planet in terms of being on the water. So I think within like the first, I want to say four hours of being on the boat is when it started to really hit me. As soon as the land left... Um, the horizon and we were out in the the water 360 degrees and that's all you could see for as long as you could see uh i was i was like holy shit i don't know it really hit me then that was that was an insane realization that's all i was gonna see for the next three plus weeks and it was gonna be light out the whole time it's gonna be light out 24 7 so <laughs> 5 a.m 5 p.m doesn't matter it was light as hell so then what were so how many how many days did it span first so our row, because we had to stop short, was 14 days. And then, so what did you have? One, what was the food situation like? And then what was the sleeping situation like? Good question. So the food situation, we vacuum packed a bunch of freeze-dried food, um, like super calorie dense freeze-dried food packets, as well as like muesli, which is pretty much just granola mixed with seeds and nuts, uh, super popular in Europe. And then like... I guess, protein, energy bars, uh, electrolyte packets, things like that. And it's funny because I, I feel like all these different endurance things, the, the food situations always prep the same way. So each day or each meal is kind of put into its own bag labeled with how many calories or what's in it and then put into a larger bag for that day. And that's pretty much how we did it. We vacuum packed like dozens and dozens of these bags for each of us. Um, everyone was pretty much eating the same thing and we put it into the whole uh, of the boat, there was like a little um, opening that was water uh, proof or sealed against the water, and we just stuck it in there and would take that out each time we had choice for meal um, or time for meal. Sorry. And then the sleeping situation: there was a cabin on either end of the boat. The captain and then the, uh, I guess Alex at the time would sleep in the bow cabin, and the rest of us were in the stern cabin. So there was one in. One of the cabins, two in the other cabin, and we would just sleep in there. Super small, super cramped. All of my appendages fell asleep and got all tingly, but it's okay. So then how like how long were you able to sleep, and then how long were you rowing? So the way the schedule was, we would row for 90 minutes, rest for 90 minutes, go back to rowing for 90 minutes, and continue on that schedule for 24 hours a day, seven <laughs> days a week. So we'd have 90 minutes off every 90 minutes, and... Of course, you need time to eat. I mean, you're burning over 10,000 calories a day easy. So 
you need to eat every rest uh, period. So realistically, you're going to sleep 45 minutes max in each of those rest periods. So you're pretty much feeling lobotomized after a day or two. So that start to mess you up at some point, like the not sleeping thing. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. So <laughs> yeah, sleep, not sleeping is kind of an issue. The combination of waking up at like 3am to bright sunlight with, like, <laughs> with birds flying around your head, not having slept at all, being super nauseous with, uh, just disgusting sweat dripping down your, like it's not, not. actually, I don't know if I ever asked you this, but this is one of the most important questions we've been on in the open waters. We went on vacation once we went deep sea fishing and you and me both got seasick. How did you not get seasick on this thing? I, I think I outgrew seasickness. I swear, really? I swear to God. So my, my great uncle, my grandpa's brother apparently did the same. My grandpa always told me that I thought it was, uh, yeah, I thought it was just a, a lie that he outgrew seasickness, but I used to get seasickness so bad. Yeah, you were bad that one time. Like I, I would turn green within yeah. minutes of being on the water. Yeah, you were. And I, if if I was, but ever, did, you th- did you think about it going into it? Because I was thinking about that, but I didn't want to put that thought in your head going into it, so I never brought it up. But I was like, oh man, I wonder if he's going to be okay. No, I um, <laughs> I did think about it a lot. I was actually worried, <laughs> but if there was going to be any boat or any situation where I would get seasick, this was going to be it. The smallest boat known to man <laughs> on the roughest waters in the world, aside from like maybe the Antarctic Ocean or South South Ocean, sorry, or whatever. Um, yeah, I I don't know how I didn't get seasick, but yeah, I didn't, crazy. and I'm not going to complain. Actually, crazy. actually, I did get seasick once and vomited for hours on end. It was just a really rough storm. We had to put a sea anchor out, uh, which is essentially just this massive parachute that goes down like 10 meters to hold you in place. Uh, I guess relatively in place, you'll move like a few kilometers at most. But when I tell you it it was such a bad storm that, yeah, it was laid out 24-7, but the clouds covered the sun and it was pitch black. And four of us are in the um, cabin, the other two in the other. And so... I was the smallest guy in this boat. Alex Gregory is like six foot four, six foot six. I can't remember. Uh, Danny, Sam, they're both like six foot two plus and all weigh well over 200 pounds. And I was on the bottom of all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm spread out like a starfish. All of my limbs are being crushed. Wait, they're like on top of you? Yeah. The, Why? The, the cabin's so small. Why are you so like on all top these of each like other? six foot two plus got because the cabin's so small and we all had to go into the cabins, which are. Um, because of the storm you're sealed saying. because of the storm if, if we were outside we would have been thrown into the water so and we would have died <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> so you just had a bunch of giant dudes laying on top of you yeah massive <laughs> massive dudes crushing my appendages literally couldn't feel my arms or legs and so <laughs> so the way the um, I guess both cabins we were in the stern cabin uh, the way the cabins were set up, they were like uh, pretty much cones. They'd come to a point on, on both ends of the boat. So my head was wedged into this little point. <laughs> my eyes, my face is maybe an inch away from like the inner wall of the cabin. And imagine the boat spinning almost 360 degrees. I just, it feels like I was in a washing machine. I'm being crushed by three massive British dudes. And um, I just started vomiting in this little plastic bag. <laughs> and it was... One of the worst things that's ever happened Dude, to me. I didn't in my know time. that. <laughs> you don't tell me that. That's hilarious. And then they, I would pass the bag to Danny with my arm that I couldn't feel. He'd, he'd throw the vomit outside of the, <laughs> just keep the door, but give it back to me. Meanwhile, it's pouring rain. Everything's getting destroyed. 
So say in that situation you did get thrown overboard, was there anybody like following you guys or monitoring you? Like what if what if something happened? Was there any no, safety precautions? This this was <laughs> this was uh something that that really it was the first time in my life where I actually had to come to terms with death. I swear to God. Basically, even if we put out an SOS signal, it would take a day and a half at the minimum for a rescue vessel to, or any, even the closest ship to, to get to us. We were in such a remote spot. Helicopters couldn't get out there. wouldn't be feasible. So, um, and the water was so cold that if someone did, uh, go overboard, they, it, there would be no chance for survival. Even if they came on board, everything was wet at this point. We're, we're in a boat designed for warmer waters. It was, uh, it was bad. Scary. Good thing you had a bunch of giant British dudes slaying on top of you. Though. Oh man, don't get me started on the British dudes. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously you didn't sleep. You're not eating a lot. You're rowing the whole time. It's freezing cold. It's 14 days, however long it was. What was the what was the absolute worst part? Like the most difficult aspect of it in total. Mm. Was it actually? Was it? I mean, you were saying the mental thing. Like, is it actually the mental thing, or was the physical? It's, for, from my perspective, it was 90% mental, not maybe even 95% mental, even though it was physically tough as hell. Just when I, when I tell you I've never experienced the sensation of waking up like 10 days into this row, not knowing if it's going to be another week, another two weeks or whatever, and feeling like I haven't slept in years, waking up lobotomized, putting on ice cold, soaking wet gear even though my sleeping bag and my pajamas, which were merino wool, were soaking wet as well. There was nothing dry anymore. Having to put those on after sleeping for maybe 20 minutes, feeling nauseous as hell. It's from eating fucking disgusting bars. It was, it was hell. And then having to go out into, at times, pouring, freezing rain, getting splashed with cold water, um, being so in the middle of nowhere and having to exert so much energy for 90 minutes nonstop, just looking at the clock, waiting for it to to uh, tick down until your shift's over. It was like finding the mental fortitude to go through that every every 90 minutes, 24-7. <laughs> Holy shit, yeah. Um, I, I would say day 10 is when it starts to really get tough. Sounds like fun. Then, so you're saying like you don't know when it's going to end, however many days it's going to take. <laughs> But you, you didn't end up getting to your intended destination. So where are you trying to get to? Where did you end up? And why did you not get to the final destination? So the original plan was to row from Iceland to Longyearbyen Svalbard. Um, just because of the... So we were consulting with a, a top meteorologist out of Europe. Excuse me. Um, and basically, given the time of year and the ocean currents and the weather or at least he uh, predicted whether we, it made more sense to row from Longyearbyen Svalbard to Iceland, the north coast of Iceland. So the British guy that we leased, or I guess bought this boat from, apparently wired the uh, solar panel to the fuel cell incorrectly, so it kind of short-circuited the entire electrical system <laughs> on the boat, uh, maybe 11 or 12 days, actually maybe 9 or 10 days in. So we were running on just what was left in the battery. The solar panel was no longer going to work. And we decided we had to stop short 
uh, maybe five days north of Iceland on a tiny Norwegian island called Jan Mayen. It was super, super small, maybe the size of like maybe half of New Jersey. I don't really know the, the square mileage, but all there was was one Norwegian military base with 18 people, around 18 people. Um, and you couldn't go as a non-Norwegian, which made it even more interesting. Um, but in the last two days, with no electricity left, the, the little amount of power we had left in the fuel cell we had to reserve for um, navigation and radio purposes, which were obviously most important. So we had an auto helm for the first, I guess, nine or 10 days when we had enough electricity to use it, which pretty much just kept kept us on uh, course. And of course, the rowing is all we had to worry about. Now, Fion had to sit in the bow cabin and use these this pulley system to manually steer the boat on no sleep for like 10 hours at a time, uh, looking at a fucking compass in like little light and falling asleep so the boat would start to like turn off course and <laughs> Alex would like start kicking the glass and going, Fion, wake up. And he'd wake up and we'd get back on course. Um, so we were on that pulley system for a couple days, just losing all morale. I don't know. It was pretty crazy. And then, yeah. So I assume it was just full blown panic mode as soon as you realized the fuel cell or whatever wasn't working. No, not panic mode. Uh, Carlo is one of the most uh, mentally, I guess, steadfast guys I've ever met. He was the guy that even in the craziest storms would just sit cross-legged with completely dry clothes. No one knew how they stayed dry. <laughs> Eating his meal that it was just perfectly made. It made no sense. He, We would always look to him like he was Jesus. There would just be this aura around him. He was always smiling. And and to give you context, Carlo has long hair, a huge beard, uh, warming smile. And um, yeah, so he kind of kept everybody level-headed and, and calm. There was never any freakouts at all. Um, maybe like during some of the crazy storms that came out of nowhere for a few minutes, but, uh, it didn't get into panic mode. It was more just like we, if we miss Jan Mayan, we would be in super deep trouble, like to the point where it would get, uh, tricky. Yeah. Cause you have no battery pretty much. Yeah. So point. it's not like we could even put out an SOS signal. We could, we would probably die. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Fun, so right? I paid money to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, survived. You lived to tell the tale. Yeah, I did live to tell. Why did I do this? I don't know. That's that's why. That's what we're gonna get to. So you made it to the Norwegian island. Actually, this is also a fun nugget. Just what's it, Jan a Meyer? Fun, wait, a fun nugget? Yeah, your your grandfather went to go meet you at the final destination you were supposed in to Iceland, end up in yeah. Iceland, and you never made it to Iceland. So your grandfather was there waiting for you, but yeah. you never showed up. So my grandpa, because my grandpa's traveled the world, he he is uh, super into traveling, exploration, etc. So he came to Svalbard with me. After I left, he went down south to Tromsø, Tromsø, sorry, on the mainland of Norway, and worked on a farm to, to pass. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, okay? Um, it is actually. It's, it is cool <laughs> to pass the time. So he pretty much lived on this farm. They gave him the accommodation, the food, and he was shoveling sheep shit. And those were his own <laughs> words for a few weeks to pass the time while I was going to be on the water. And then he flew to Iceland to come meet me. And I just imagine him standing on the beach with this welcome, welcome back Tyler sign and me just <laughs> never coming. <laughs> no, he, he was in good hands. He was with um, 
oh, what was her name? I can't remember. One of Fionn's friends who was like this uh, super nice lady, super well-connected in Iceland. He was with her. She kind of took him under her wing and, and I don't think it was too bad of a situation. But yeah, I never came in. He was waiting for me. Never came. <laughs> I wound up on some little Norwegian island with military members in the middle of nowhere. So. And then you were st- weren't you stuck there for a while, right? Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I, they had the shittiest Wi-Fi uh, situation because everything was off like a satellite um, system. So I literally had to go into this one internet room and on Instagram message my manager because I had a job at the time. <laughs> hey, um, funny story. I know I said I was going to be back in like three weeks. There's no way I'm going <laughs> to. I'm stuck. <laughs> so I know you might not believe this. I'm on this little teeny island in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. It's prob- probably going to be a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and how long was it actually? It wound up being a little over two weeks. So private, like civilian um, vessels, aircrafts couldn't land without a permit from the Norwegian military, which would take weeks in its in itself to uh, to happen. So either we would have to wait for one of the cargo drops from the Norwegian government or a shift swap where they would like bring on new military members, take the old ones home, or... And I guess the other option, which we wound up going with and which was pretty lucky, was um, a military ship in the area. There was a Norwegian Coast Guard ship somewhat close, and um, we wound up explaining the situation to them, and they were more than happy to refuel uh, at Yamine and bring us home. It was a like two-and-a-half-day trip back to mainland, mainland um, Norway. And I know the answer to this question, but did you end up with any physical ailments following the row? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> so when we took the boat back to mainland Norway, we actually came into a town called Sortland. <laughs> okay, let's... So did you it's have nice any town. physical ailments after the row? No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, really bad physical ailments. Almost lost my toes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we were as prepared as we could have been. So it's, it's funny that all this stuff happened. I mean, the, the boats, Rannick made the boats. Great boats for ocean rowing, but they're meant for like Indian Pacific Atlantic Ocean crossings where the temperature's normal, not like 30 degrees and freezing all the time. If we, oh man, there were some times where we would go into ice fields and if even the smallest collision with one of these mini icebergs happened, we would have been toast because it's like this super thin fiberglass hole. Definitely could have done some more preparation work with the actual boat we were going to use, but it was our only option given the time um, factor. But yeah, so so we thought we were prepared gear-wise, but four out of the six of us wound up getting um, non-freezing cold injuries, uh, which were pretty much, it's like one step below severe frostbite. And it was just, it's, it's like trench foot in a way. So just having your toes and your fingers exposed to freezing cold temperatures and being soaking wet for two weeks um, is a great way to get it. And you don't realize you have it because your nerves are pretty much, uh, you know, numb to it. And so when we landed, this guy, this guy, uh, Tora, 
this big, he was like, if, if you can imagine a Viking, but just put in modern day society, this is him. He's this massive Norwegian guy. If he grew a beard and wore like a traditional Viking outfit, you would think he's a Viking, but he, he meets us on the beach just to give you more context, gives me, uh, gives us all a beer, like a tall boy can of some Norwegian beer. And I don't know if anybody listening has been on a boat for weeks at a time, but you get sea legs. So you already feel absolutely drunk when you get back on land. You can't stand up straight. So I'm wobbling around the beach and he's like, comes up to me, grabs me and he goes, ho, 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 have this beer. Passes me this big tall boy and you can't say no to a guy like that. He would crush me with his <laughs> pointer finger and thumb. I drink the beer pretty quickly. Now I'm hammered after one beer. <laughs> And I don't even realize anything's wrong with my feet, but then they have a hot tub at the military base. That's another thing. There's, there's so many details I can go into about this. Like I was expecting this little shack with a microwavable soup as the military base, but it was state of the art. They had a hot tub, a warm pool. So we go in the hot tub right when we get back, we drink beers. And then that night, all of us just start screaming <laughs> because our toes feel like they're being uh, squeezed in like a vice and also dipped in liquid metal and being stabbed with multiple knives at a time. I can't explain the sensation any other way. It was the single most painful thing I've ever felt in my life. I couldn't sleep for like the first few nights on the island. Couldn't walk. We, we had to walk like maybe a quarter of a mile at most to the main base from where we were sleeping each night and it would take like two hours. <laughs> Sounds lovely. It doesn't sound that bad. No, it's pretty bad. Um, and the the medical staff at the base had to help us out with that, but there wasn't much you could do. And how long did that last? Um, the two weeks we were on the uh, the island, it, it, it pretty much, and then like a couple of days after I had gotten home. I mean, the numbness persisted for a long time. I remember going back to work and just not being able to feel my yeah, toes. Yeah, I remember you. That's what I remember you saying. <laughs> you can feel your toes like for a couple months after or something yeah. like that. But you made it home and survived. So you survived the whole ordeal, the whole row. Had all those records, like I said. Although, did you break every single record you wanted, or were there a few you didn't get? Because um, you didn't make it all the way to Iceland, so did that make a big that like matter that much? No, I I can't remember. There was only one record we didn't get as a team. Um, I can't remember what it was, but all the other ones, like Jan Mayen is so close to Iceland that all the other ones we were attempting to break were broken. It wasn't that big of a deal. Mission success. It just would have been a lot easier getting to Iceland and civilization instead of a yeah being stuck on a Norwegian <laughs> island. Um. So then fast. So then you survived that. You got some uh, numb toes, but for the most part, you're okay. Yeah. Fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm right. Fast forward to this year, and you decided you wanted to do the Marathon de Sable. So explain that for people that don't know, because after you did, I had some people trying to ask me to explain it to them, and I think you'll do a better job. So, I run across the desert <laughs> for how long? Uh, for six days. I mean, the whole thing was like two weeks, or I guess ten days, getting there and whatnot. But it's funny too because it's the antithesis of what the row was. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask that. Like, did you intentionally do the row was cold? On the water, mostly upper body, and then you did the run. This run, which was super hot, lower body, and uh, I forget what the third thing is, but <laughs> total opposite. Uh, yeah, no, maybe subconsciously I did, but not knowingly, just wound up being the exact opposite. Um, but what it was, the Marathon de Sab is uh, a six-day, 150-mile, about 150-mile race across the Sahara Desert. 
where you're fully self-sufficient. So everything you need outside of water for those six days you're carrying on your back. Each day is about a marathon and the fourth into the fifth day is 56 miles. Um, fun. Again, fun. And I, pay, a- I paid money to do that. <laughs> yeah, you're going to go broke trying to kill yourself. <laughs> Are you... Um, having a brain fart did Mm. you (laughs) so were you just you were just looking for another challenge essentially like like so this time it was different like did you feel like okay i'm gonna try and like i want to keep doing these same things like that or were you just like bored again yeah well i think it's a mix of both i know i want to keep doing these things and i hope like i mean later this year it's nothing too special but i have like a 50 miler coming up and then I think in 2020, I'm going to try to have four concrete kind of crazier, even crazier things uh, on the books. So they'll keep getting crazier. I I've, I know I want to keep doing these things and hopefully, um, you know, get more into it as time passes. But also I was just bored and I was on a, uh, I was in a meeting with uh, one of our prospective clients from National Australia Bank where he I, he was out of breath when he when he met me and he said he had ran to the office um, and explained that he got inspired by his friend who did this race in Morocco the year before. And we talked more about it and uh, I signed up for the world's toughest foot race the next day because an Australian man told me to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always listen to Australian men, though. They're always How right. can you not? Yeah. That accent? Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. It's impossible, yeah. And you... Did the race, so it was a marathon every day, but one of the days was like was two, right? Wasn't one of the days longer? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you did it every day. That was Th- crazy. This, this one though, you get to sleep. You got you, to sleep this time. I got to sleep, yeah. With scorpions and rocks. But they didn't kill you. No. And it was also since it was in the Sahara, you have to run through, so there were a lot of sand dunes as well. Like it wasn't like just flat ground. No, it was all paved. <laughs> no, like concrete it was, road. <laughs> it was uh especially on day two we we went through this pretty infamous section of sand dunes where the average dunes maybe 200 feet in height there, there were mountains just made of sand um and i think the tallest sand dune in that part of the sahara 600 feet high is in that patch so for maybe 12 miles of that day it was strictly going up and down these massive multi-hundred foot sand dunes uh where the sand would go up to your mid-calf it was so soft, so fine. Um, that was that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so soft, so fine. So soft, so fine. Sahara. What I, what I was thinking too is at least you had people monitoring you this time. So if you almost died, there'd be people there instead of waiting two days in the. That's ocean. true. And uh, yeah, speaking of the sand dunes, I, one of my favorite memories is watching the Spanish man collapse like ten meters in it's front your of me. Favorite memory? You enjoyed watching a Spanish man collapse. I didn't enjoy it, but it, it definitely sticks out. It was, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. Collapsed like 10 meters in front of me. And I just thought in my, in my head, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> damn. And I myself was already dehydrated. I didn't take enough water from the checkpoint before that. So I was worried that was going to happen to me. Um, I still had like six miles left with no water <laughs> in 120, if not warmer, uh, a warmer temperature, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the heat from the sand was radiating from up from below you. The heat from the sun was coming down. Saw this guy pass out. They had to bring in a helicopter after sticking with an IV from a little dune buggy. Fun. 
I paid for this. <laughs> I paid to do this. Yeah, I know. You have a problem. Yeah, I do. And how much worse, so the two-day, uh, or the two-marathon one, it was, was it whatever, the one where it was longer, how much worse was that in comparison to all the other days? A pretty bad, yeah, yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> you should have done this the whole time, just like not really answered any questions, just like contradicted everything I was saying, all my leading yeah, it questions. Was, it was fine. Next question. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, it was bad. Um, running a marathon in sand and on rocks uh, in 120 degree weather is tough. With everything on your back. With with 20 pounds on day one and two on my back, for sure. is That's tough, but then waking up after already having ran three marathons... And knowing you have to run 56 miles with a bunch of weight on your back in 100 plus degree Fahrenheit weather. Um, well, that that sucks. And then you are maybe like 30 miles in and it's the most you've run so far at, at one time. And you think, oh, I, I only have 20. I only have another marathon now <laughs> after you've already run more than a marathon. And then the sun starts going down. And given the, I guess, relatively small amount of people running the race, you don't see anybody for the rest of the time and you take your headlamp out um, and you're literally running through the Sahara desert by yourself with just a headlamp and the bag on your back. I mean, the stars were incredible, so that helped, <laughs> but it was insane. And you start to hallucinate. You're so tired. I mean, you're running for, uh, I can't remember how long it took me to do that. Maybe uh, 16 hours. 16 hours? Yeah, it, was some, it actually was something like that. So running nonstop for 16 hours. Um, yeah, that's crazy. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Oh, and fun question. There was also a dog that joined you on the race. How was the, how was the, did you get to meet the dog? Cactus. I did. And in a funny way too, I'd be, I'd be running um, and little cactus would pass me. <laughs> Just on the right side, I'd, I'd smile at him and then he'd pass me and he beat me every day. And, he, and it was so annoying that a dog was beating me. So for people that weren't paying attention, there was some, it was someone's dog. It wasn't a stray dog. It was no, someone's it was dog. some Moroccan guy's dog. Yeah, some guy's dog just started running with the people and they said, oh, he's only going to do it for a day and then we'll give him back to the owner. And then the dog just kept running. They go, actually, the owner just said they don't care. He's just going to finish the race. He wound up getting a bib number. He wound up getting a tracker. The Moroccan guy was just like, hey, he's having fun. I'll let him do it. And he wound up placing very. Uh, he started. Well. He started the second day too, so he almost did the whole thing. Or second yeah, he, or third? I, th- I think second. Yeah. So he almost did the entire race. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> Cactus. That was fun. I'm actually meeting up with uh, two of the guys that I did the race with tomorrow at the Belmont Stakes. It's fun. Yeah. Get to dress up in pastel colors. I guess it's a good way to make new friends. Yeah, You're doing something type, really terrible like that together. A personalities like everything from Navy SEAL to extreme Wall Street finance guys. It was crazy, but everyone's psychotic. So I think you have to be. You have. I don't think to, you yeah. can do that and be normal. Yeah, and the best part was watching uh, a woman in the tent next to me, Jewel. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's just a little <laughs> e-cigarette. Jewel each night in her tent after running a marathon. It was insane. But. I mean, Regular 100-mile race runner, and I guess whatever works, right? So so then I, you had the tracker on you, so I was following you every day. We could send you messages, so I was sending you encouraging messages. Did you get every single message? I did get every single message. I got a ton of messages, and I was very happy about that. My tent mates made fun of me for having too many supporters. 
And so I was monitoring every day. You'd usually be doing in the morning. So I check like morning here. So I'd be checking every time I woke up kind of where you were. You'd usually be kind of usually be about halfway every time I woke up. But then the last day I woke up, I go potty, I go tinks, I go check my phone. What's tinks? Don't ask. Okay. If, if you have to ask, you can't know. So I go check. <laughs> have I ever tinked? Yes, you have. You just don't realize. I check my phone. Let me finish. I check my phone and I tink. <laughs> I freaked out because you were way out in front and almost done when usually you would be kind of right in the middle of the pack, like halfway. Oh, do I have a story for you? So, so let me hear one, tell your story. Two, what was your mindset going into it? What, like, the last day? The last day. Like, did you just book it the whole way, book it at the end? I like, did. How did you, like, what was the whole strategy going into it? How'd you approach well, it? Well, <laughs> oh, oh, Vincenzo. No, I'm just kidding. So um, Don Chen's. Don Chen's, sorry. Don Chen's. Vincenzo is no longer with us. Okay. Don Don Chen's. Um, no, so I mean I I had I finished in the top 40% of runners. I I held a pretty good pace and I was pretty competitive with some of the um guys around my age who were in the tent next to me who I wound up becoming good friends with. So I I kept a good pace for the entire race, but I knew my dad was flying out to rural Morocco to come see me on the last day but on in kind of the itinerary and from the people who have done it in the past apparently they were only at the finish line but I remember waking up on the sixth and final day <clears throat> and um, just being so kind of uh, beaten down by the five days before because keep in mind I just woke up after running after having run 16 miles um, and now having to run another uh, marathon. Um, and the last stage is exactly marathon. So I wake up and I'm feeling not discouraged, but, you know, tired and just like, oh man, I, I don't feel like running an entire marathon again. And I see, I, I, I was kind of taking a little bit to get ready. So everybody from my tent had gone to the starting line and I see one of my tent mates, Gail, this French guy, um, walking up to me with a guy who I could tell from his gate was my dad. I mean, I knew, I knew just from his gate, it was my dad. Isn't that weird? I could, I could tell who people are from their gates. Very obvious. Your dad has a very obvious gate though. Okay. My dad has a, has an obvious gate. Yeah. A unique gate. A unique gate. <laughs> um, so I, I, it clicked. It was my dad and they had like the whole film crew come up and, um, like circle us as we hugged. It was super emotional. I hope they that, actually did that. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, the the volunteers came with like two cameras on these cool uh, holder setup things and kind of circled us as we were hugging. I think it's probably going to make it to the video. But my dad came up. It was super emotional. I didn't cry, but <laughs> you cry. I did. I know I didn't cry. You cry. We're gonna have the video. We're gonna see it. That's true. You cried. Shit. Admit it. No, I didn't. I didn't admit cry. it. I didn't cry. Admit it. I, exclusive. I Wolf Mentality Podcast exclusive. Tyler Carnavalli cried at his race. Continue. So these four British guys were uh, just kidding. It was actually three. Um, no. So I didn't cry. You cried. Didn't cry. No, it was it was great. I hugged him for a long time. It was super motivating, super encouraging. Um, and as soon as I saw my dad, it was the most surreal thing. As like the sun's rising, I just got into this new headspace, um, ate my breakfast, got in a line. I was super pumped. Um, one of the German guys who I got along with, well, Kevin, was beating me each day. 
um, after the first day and I was getting super competitive with him, he was in pretty good shape. Um, but I had already wanted to be in today and now this was also another motivating aspect, but pretty much just picked up my pace, sprinted the entire marathon, not sprinted, but ran really fast, placed really well that day. Saw my dad at checkpoint two, I want to say, which was pretty much halfway uh, through the day. And he has all these funny videos of me because he was recording me on his phone. And then I saw him at the finish line, but I... And you were sprinting at the finish line. I got super hyped about that because you were booking it at the end. Holy shit. I was... <laughs> I. I, I get into this mindset. I was super excited. I mean, it was about to be over. I would get to see my dad. I would get to relax and not have to worry about anything. So I am so tired at this point. My legs are just jello. They're numb. I mean, imagine being at the end of running 150 miles and just knowing you have a mile left. So for the final mile, I I had BCAA powder with me. So amino acids that had caffeine in it. <laughs> You're snorting pre-workout during <laughs> this run. I, I empty the rest of it into this little uh, bottle, or I guess the one of my bottles that I carried, and chugged it. I put my AirPods in, put on, and I hadn't been listening to music for the most part, put on uh, Devil's Alive by Rick Ross, blasted it. That's a great it. song. Great wow, song. that is actually such a great song. Started acting like a psycho and started punching my thighs and uh, screaming and getting super pumped up. And this guy running next to me is like, he looks at me, he gives me this weird look, and then he's like, Hell yeah. And then uh, <laughs> and then I just booked it for the last mile. Probably ran like a five minute mile, no joke, sprinted as hard as I could all the way to the uh, finish line. And um, so worth it. And then you cried with your dad. You embraced and had another <laughs> I good I bawled cry. my eyes out with daddy. <laughs> Father. Um, so I think I know the answer. But which? Why, why are you asking? I don't understand. For the people. But it's just you and me here. Oh, wait, you're right. I even hit record. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, which which was more difficult to complete between the two? Ooh, that is a good question. It's easier to say the Marathon de Saab because... You think? I think the Rose is the obvious answer. Well, no, no. It's easier to say that because it happened more recently and that's what's kind of sticking out my mind because it, it was it was tough. It was fucking hard. And... Uh, it's easier to say that, but I think, I don't know. I think the row might've been harder uh, mentally when it was debilitating. It was, I, I felt lobotomized at the end. Um, I think the row. Yeah. The race, the race, you got more recovery time. It was more organized. You didn't have these like lingering uh, thoughts in the back of your head of, holy shit, I'm going to die. Um, I, yeah. So the row. Yeah. Death was definitely imminent during the row. So death it was, was imminent. Um, there were, there were like three times where I, was legitimately close to dying. All of us were. How much weight did you end up losing during the row? Good question. During the row, I think 15 pounds. And during the race, I think 12 pounds. So similar. That's the race actually, was half surprising. the time though. I would think you would have lost more during the row. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I, I, I was eating a lot in the beginning. So I think that had to do with it. So I was probably eating like, 5,000 calories a day on the row, especially towards the beginning. At the end, when uh, shit started hitting the fan, I was only eating like a bar or two a day. Um, but on the race, because you're carrying, uh, during the race, sorry, because you're carrying everything you need to eat, you want to make it as light as possible. You have to have 2,000 calories at a minimum per day for that race. They check. 
And obviously you want to make it as light as possible. So I was only eating at max like 2,300 calories a day. And I think that's why the weight loss was so much more intense with that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Great, great new diet method or like new weight <laughs> don't loss eat. method. Yeah. <laughs> Just run, don't, don't run for eat days and run and across eat. the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and so you alluded to it before. Um, well, actually, before I get to that. So you said you want to keep doing these types of things. You want to keep being an endurance athlete Duh. and adventurer. What is what is the reason for it? Like, what's your motivation? Why do you want to keep doing these things um, and paying money to try and kill yourself? Well, I mean, hopefully the the paying money aspect will uh, disappear over time as as I start to prove myself more and get sponsorships. I mean, we had great sponsorships for the row. Uh, shout out Vega Protein who sponsored us a ton. Who else? Cliff. Quest and Cliff. Oh, I Quest. Think. Yeah, Quest Nutrition sponsored us a ton. They even did, uh, we did Instagram takeovers with them and they started to get really upset. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but towards the end when shit got tough and obviously we couldn't post as much, we were about to die and they were getting upset that we would. We Wait, what? <laughs> so you were supposed to be posting during the row and they were like mad at you that we, you weren't posting during the row? We had like a row? little satellite-based email uh, thing on the boat that we were supposed to be sending pictures to them through what yo um, could you imagine i can't imagine i'm worried about dying and then someone's like yo you're not posting on instagram what's your deal you guys aren't uh you guys <laughs> hey, aren't. You didn't put up a facebook status <laughs> what the hell you're like have two giant british dudes laying on top of you <laughs> in a huge storm about to die in the middle of the ocean oh it's man freezing. yeah and yeah i don't know that's uh, nuts i didn't know you had to do that well, I the, fun, the funny the thing race. is i the, I was originally the point of contact for for um, Quest, um, and then I kind of passed it off to Alex Gregory, one of my roommates, without him knowing, which I I still laugh about so much because poor poor Alex is like the the sweetest guy ever, and I feel so bad that he did this. But then like once we were on Yan Mayan and they were still asking for updates and things, it was all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> she would email me some kind of like not angry email, but she'd be like, Hey, like we, we asked for an update. What's going on. And I just forwarded it to Alex and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd wake up and he'd be like, he'd be like, Tyler, what do you want me to do? And I'd be like, I don't know. It's your responsibility. <laughs> he was posting on his own Instagram though, during the row. He was, he was very dramatic. He was pretty much saying like, yeah, this is terrible. We're all going to die. I hate that I'm doing He this. was saying what we were all thinking. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he was like legit just like, this is the worst thing ever. I'm going to die. It was, we almost died many times. It was really cold, horrible, like literally the most horrible thing ever. But he did a really good job at, at explaining how bad it was. Yeah. I remember I wasn't following him on social media, but my mother was. And my mom would just text me every day and be like, I don't think they're doing okay. She would just send me his tweets and like post or whatever. Fionn, Fionn wound up getting really mad, the, our, our captain, the, the organizer, because uh, Alex Gregory, uh, two-time Olympic gold medalist, pretty well known in the UK. So of course, as this story started to develop and it almost turned into this, I mean, it, it was good for the news outlets, I guess, when we got quote on quote unquote stranded um like the bbc and all these different the, the sun or whatever it's called out of the uk all these big uh, media outlets in the uk started to publish <laughs> alex gregory's posts that were super <laughs> dramatic so we're, we're we're chilling eating cookies on yon mayan watching movies with all the norwegian military members and then bbc is like four british rowers stranded on yon mayan <laughs> 
death imminent still. And Alex is looking at me eating like an Oreo. Um, but they just, they share his post of uh, his pruned hands that he put on his Instagram. Yeah, his, yeah, that's <laughs> why I remember the hands. Yeah, yeah, the hands. That went viral too. That was all over, yeah, all over the internet. Um, no, it was pretty funny because, yeah, just it was so dramatic that it really made for a good story. I think we got totally off topic of whatever question I started asking. Topic. 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 Uh, I'm trying really hard not to say so. Um, so unique then it, gate. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what did I ask you? What? Oh, so why do you want to keep doing these things? Like you said, you that's what you started. Then you started saying you wanted to get sponsorships, just sponsorships before. But what's the what's the end goal? What's your motivation to keep doing these things? Like, why do you why do you want to keep trying? I guess you would think the end goal is death, right? It seems like it. You would think it's a beautiful suicide. Um, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I'd be very upset. It's a really drawn out death wish. Um, no, uh, I think I think I do. Th- I mean, I've always like long distance running and endurance type activities just because I think it puts you into a headspace you're not going to get to otherwise, like the mental state or the the thoughts or the perspective you start to uh, look at things with um, that you achieve through these things isn't something you can find elsewhere. It's almost like a uh, very unique experience where it's like, I guess the same thing as meditating or doing drugs or I guess psychoactive drugs, not just <laughs> not so, no lame drug, like crazy, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say PCP, but that's a little too crazy. Um, no, I, I definitely like. I don't know how to explain it. I always, I always say, my ultimate goal is to peer through the veil and like get these new perspectives that you really have to go to the extremes to uh, get or attain. So. Just like, for example, during that 56-mile uh, day of the Marathon de Saab, you really, it's its a meditation. It's repetitive movement. Your your mind is completely blank. And I've talked about this with people who I ran the race with. Your mind is blank. You, you couldn't, um, you know, uh, formulate a thought even if you wanted to. And, and in those moments, um, it's bliss. It gives you a brand new perspective on life. It, it gives you perspectives you can't, like I said, can't get elsewhere. And I think that's really why I do it, or at least part of it. Um, and really just seeing what you're capable of. Like if you uh, are able to run the marathon to Saab and complete it, that shows you that in a much easier situation, like day-to-day life, living in a city like New York, nothing should be able to, uh, you know, negatively impact you. It's like if you can make it through the hardest physical and mental challenges on earth, then Everything else should be a walk in the park. I don't know. There are a lot of aspects to it. You answered my next question was how does it affect your day-to-day life? So, so it affects go. my day-to-day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just, no. Um, make, makes, it, it, it makes life much easier to take less seriously because it, it just really... like The funniest thing is within a 24-hour period coming from the most remote part of Morocco's section of the Sahara Desert to one of the most populated areas on life, it's just, it's a joke. I could walk into Dwayne Reed and buy a water bottle, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and out there, there are kids whose entire lives are centered around a well in the middle of rural Morocco, which is wild. Their entire life will be in that one location. Maybe they have a car if they're lucky, but like, it, it's just, it's crazy. I don't know. Puts into perspective. Puts things into perspective. 
You know what's crazy? This is probably the longest we've ever talked and been semi-serious. You ever think about that? Yeah, we messed around quite a bit, but I thought it, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't yeah, make it sense. it would distract from the conversation. It would distract from, yeah. We, we can mess around a little bit. No, 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 no serious. All right. Um, and then, so you all, this is what I was going to say, you alluded to this earlier. So you have plans to keep doing these types of things. What do you have? Uh, what's on the horizon? Do you have anything set in stone yet? Anything you're planning? Anything you're thinking about that you can tell the people for them to pay attention to? No. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, nothing too crazy. I, I'm i at, at a point right now where I'm trying to figure out what the best path forward is, is going to be to go about this type of stuff. I have some ideas. Stay tuned. But um, the next few things. So in... Uh, November, I'm doing the North Face Endurance Challenge out near San Francisco with a few buddies that I did the Marathon de Sao with. That's just a 50-mile trail. Just a 50-mile trail. Just just a 50-mile trail race with a pretty uh, unforgiving cutoff time. So that'll be fun. Uh, not going to train for that. I'm just going to wing it and see how that goes. And then um, I'm running the Pyongyang Marathon in April of 2020. That's the next confirmed thing. I, but That's been a big uh, point of contention. I'm trying to tell him not to yes. do that. A lot of people think it's a horrible idea to go to North Korea. But the problem is people telling you it's not a good idea, I know, makes Fuels you want to do it. Yeah, it makes you <laughs> Fuels the fire. Makes you think you have to do it. Yeah. I, don't, I know I don't have to do it, but I think I'm super interested by uh, taboo things and uh obscure places like I, like i said peering through the veil um even relates to that like seeing things 99.9 repeated forever percent of people are never going to see it's more beneficial i think to uh you know life than anything else is just you know exposing yourself to tough situations like the row or the race or you know, obscure areas of the world, cultures, situations, etc. I don't know. Exposing yourself to these obscure and taboo things, I think, is super beneficial for your outlook on life, your perspective. I'll talk you out of it. I'll try to. Okay. I'm, I'll... <laughs> All right. You think that's good? What do you think? We hit, we hit an hour, so we're good. All right. Um, let's do, let's finish it up. Song recommendation. Go. Hit them with it. Do you even have one? Song recommendation. Song, artist, music. Hmm. Song recommendation. I mean, I guess they're more mainstream now, but I would always, always, always recommend uh, Alt-J's first album, An Awesome Wave. It's one of the best albums I've ever heard in my entire life. I'll always vouch for it. Um, it is unbelievable. So if you haven't listened to that album, I highly recommend it. A few of their songs were on my playlist for uh, running the Marathon de Saab and also the Row. So I guess it's relevant as well. Um, I guess that would be my, my music recommendations. I don't know. I have a ton of music recommendations. I love music. Everyone but Tyler, the creator. <laughs> I told you not to say that. I said it. What are you going to do? All right. That's it. Tyler Carnavalli, my bestest buddy. Endurance athlete, adventure guy, crazy man. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I, I really needed an interview. So, <laughs> Wait, I was plan Z. 
You were kind. <laughs> nah, you were just like, when I needed one, I was hoping you would do it. And no I problem. needed one. So thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Stay tuned. I'll have some, I think I'm going to aim to have like four pretty, uh, pretty cool expeditions coming in 2020. So we'll see. All right. And I will put up in the show notes some articles and different things written about his row and info about the Marathon de Saab and all that stuff. All that good, good. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks say, for having me. Say bye. Bye. Bye.